It's <coughs> <Sorry>. COVID. <laughs> ah. Only time will tell. Hello, and welcome back to Medic Minutes, the British Columbia Emergency Health Services podcast for paramedics. I'm Kayla Richardson, a respiratory therapist and UBC medical student. I'm Gord Meineker, a primary care paramedic from Vancouver Island and a fellow UBC medical student. In today's episode, we will be reviewing some of the clinical practice changes that have been announced in response to the coronavirus pandemic. We will cover updates from March 27th until today, April 3rd, 2020. So last week, we put out a similar clinical summary episode. And just a reminder to always check the handbook for your latest guidelines, including there's a YouTube channel by BCEHS Clinical and Professional Practice that has a lot of good daily updates on it as well. So we're going to try and recap as much as we can in today's episode while not making it drag on for too long. And before we get started, I just want to thank every single person that has responded to our podcast survey. So if you haven't done so yet, the survey is available on the handbook. If you look under clinical resources at our BCEHS podcast, Medic Minutes, at the start of each episode's write-up, there should be a link to our survey. And we really appreciate your suggestions, and we are trying to incorporate your feedback into the next few episodes. So please tune in and keep up to date. Um, This podcast is for you, and we hope it has been and continues to be a useful resource. We'll go over the most recent practice changes, which are up to date as of April 3rd, 2020, starting with. So in today's episode, we're going to front load it with the clinical stuff, and then we're going to finish with some of the logistics stuff that is new. So uh, first, just a quick reminder about PPE. Um, We put out a podcast episode recently on uh, proper use of kind of precautions and personal protective equipment to wear on these calls. Um, And this is really a different way of doing ambulance calls than we've ever done before. We're really trying to reduce exposure amongst crews. There was a reminder by clinical this week about, you know, if you have other crews like ALS being layered onto your call, uh, really try and think through about who you need on this call and trying to limit exposure. With that being said, this means that we have to have really good communication with our partners. We have to have a plan in place for how we're going to communicate. If you're trying to keep one person clean and one person gowned up, How are you guys going to communicate if you can't directly see each other? Communication is really important now more than ever. So just a friendly reminder to uh, review that PPE episode. Consider not wearing your stethoscope around your neck the whole shift. Minimize the things that you're bringing on your belt. Keep the slider compartment closed in the ambulance. And have a look at your ambulance at the beginning of the shift and really ask yourself, if we get called to a COVID-positive sick respiratory patient today, are we prepared to transport them and then confidently clean our ambulance at the end of the shift? And if the answer is no, if you have gear thrown about in the back of the ambulance, if your suction yonker is still connected to the canister and it's laying on the side, or if you have textile covers over all of your gear that are going to be difficult to clean after a patient like that, I just think that we're really having to do business differently now than ever. And it's really important for us to think these things through ahead of time. There's my little rant there, Kayla. <laughs> One of your better rants, Cord. <laughs> Clinical had a really good reminder this week about, um, first of all, I mean, they're doing an incredible job of of doing secondary triage to minimize ambulance responses to these uh, low acuity potential COVID calls. So thanks to clinical for that. Um, But also make sure that you're using your full call sign, including your region when you call them. So right up front, they need to know who you are 
and what you're calling for. And we get so used to not using our full call sign with our region because who would need to know that and clinical would need to know that. So one of the newest updates as of March 30th was the use of patient salbutamol. So because nebulization is a high-risk procedure, uh, there is no more nebulization and we're switching to MDIs, so metered dose inhalers for the administration of salbutamol, also known as Ventolin. And because of the global pandemic, the stock of salbutamol is quite low. Paramedics are able to use the patient's own prescribed salbutamol MDI. So just a side note, um, they may refer to their MDI as their blue puffer or inhaler or rescue device or rescue puffer, and it comes in a blue actuator. And that's how a large number of patients identify their medication. So just to keep that in mind. And the MDI distribution um, to stations will be on a prioritized basis. So ACPs and CCPs will receive it first and then high volume PCPs and then other um, PCP stations. And because hospitals are also running low on these MDIs, make sure that if you crack a new device, if you have a new MDI for a patient, that it goes with them to the hospital and is retained for their use. And then Kayla, I guess the only thing there is that we really need to make sure that we're checking expiry dates. And do you find that there's a good way to know if there is actually doses left in the canister? No, there isn't really a perfect way to know how many doses are left unless the patient has been keeping track of their actuations, which technically we tell every patient to do and they're supposed to keep track. Um, But there are some actuators that have a a dosage counter on it. So that can be really helpful. Um, Some people do it by weight, although that is tricky because you can it can still have weight to it, um, but a lot of the times there's no medication left. It's just the propellant left in the canister, so you can't really tell that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So my recommendation is, I mean, if this is a patient who has an MDI, who uses it for their asthma or their COPD, um, just ask them when they opened it. Check the date. Um, so definitely check the expiry date. You know, if it expired a couple of years ago, you probably don't want to use that. Um but and just ask them when's the last time you use this and how frequently you know do you do you use it uh, if they're able to answer you that'd be ideal. But you know if you're if you're questioning whether or not there's any medication in there, you should probably crack a new one. So there were changes this week to um, some of the airway management guidelines, including oxygen flow rates for devices. So. I mean, a big kudos to the organization for responding as quickly as they did and changing some of their clinical guidelines. Last week, we had initially gone down to a maximum of six liters per minute on all devices. We're really in an unprecedented time here, and I know that it can be frustrating as guidelines continually change, but it's just the nature of the beast. As we accumulate new evidence, things are going to change, and it's for everyone's best interest. So we are now saying that all nasal cannulas should have a maximum flow rate of five liters per minute. So nasal cannula is maximum five, and then still under another mask, whether that's a non-rebreather, a CPAP, or BVM, or a surgical mask. The most recent recommendation for non-rebreathers and bag valve mask has changed. So non-rebreathers and BVMs can be run up to 15 liters per minute, as long as it's necessary to maintain oxygen saturation of 90%. So we're still targeting 
an oxygen saturation of 90%. Use as little oxygen as possible to get there. And if you need to go up to 15 liters on a non-rebreather or with a BVM, you can. Always make sure that with your BVM that you're trying to get a really good seal on there. Um, that seal is really important for your own safety. It's really important for the oxygenation of the patient. Um, and always use your inline filter. To summarize the new guidelines, maximum five liters per minute by nasal prongs, maximum 15 liters per minute by non-rebreather and BBM. So on the topic of oxygen flow rates and um, respiratory management, we'll do a quick review of all of the airway practice updates that have come about. So some updates for airway management. Remember, we withhold all nebulization of all medications, and we use MDIs where available. Intranasal medication administration has been restricted due to the high risk of aerosolization. It's only to be used in times where it's absolutely necessary and as a last resort. Remember to suction only when necessary and you wear full PPE. And this includes both oro and nasogastric suctioning, as well as endotracheal suctioning. Remember, the cuff is not a perfect seal. Patients coughing can bypass the cuff. So just be aware of that. Endotracheal intubation is to be performed only by CCPs, so critical care paramedics, with extreme caution and discretion. And always, always use an inline filter when ventilating any patient and just for clarity, the inline filter is rated at greater than 99.999% efficiency for blocking viruses such as COVID. And use CPAP only when absolutely necessary. Exercise extreme caution and discontinue the CPAP when you enter the emergency department or other facilities. And just as a reminder, try to contact the receiving hospital as soon as possible to give them as much notice as you can so they can prepare. So last week, there were guidelines that came out around cardiac arrest management, and a lot of those guidelines have remained the same. So we're still saying full PPE for all cardiac arrests. We kind of have to assume that any cardiac arrest we run or any resuscitation we perform has the potential to transmit COVID. So full PPE uh, before starting CPR and defibrillation place a surgical mask or an oxygen mask at zero liters per minute on the patient's face prior to any chest compression starting. Once you start compression only CPR, uh, the defibrillator should be connected and you should be analyzed and defibrillate if it's indicated. Once those things have been done, once you have the chest compression only CPR underway and the AED has analyzed and shocked if necessary, then you can get up to the airway and start performing airway interventions. This should be done by the most experienced or competent person on scene if possible. Uh, I know that that's kind of subjective and up for debate at times, but, uh, and then there's a preference to place eye gels as early as possible. Um, we should be pausing compressions to place these eye gels. And once an airway is in place of any kind or we're doing ventilations of any kind, we need to switch to a 30 to two ratio, 30 compressions allowing for two ventilations. We need that space in there to allow safe ventilations without any pressure coming from the chest to make sure that there's no aerosolizations of viral particles. Always use filters on your BVMs 
and for ventilation with an eye gel. And I saw a really good video show to Brad at 339 in West Kelowna. He had put out a video on it, when you're putting in an eye gel, place a viral filter on that eye gel or king before you insert it. Kayla, I think that that was a very reasonable, like quick, small, easy thing to do so that as soon as that airway is in place, the filter is also there. Yeah, that sounds great. On April 3rd, there was a change that came out around how EPOS and Clinical will be handling some of these cardiac arrest calls that they get. We're going to try and move away from transporting anyone in cardiac arrest who we do not get a return of spontaneous circulation on scene. I know that we were kind of already doing this to begin with, but it's just going to be reinforced even more. We still need to be on the lookout for reversible causes. So, you know, if there's a compelling story for a profound hypothermia or a massive pulmonary embolism or things like that, we really need to be trying to identify those things early, still calling clinical or EPOS and letting them make the decision about transport or not. If they do feel like transport is necessary, then EPOS or clinical should probably be in contact with the emergency departments directly, um, or at least there should be a conversation uh, had so that the emergency department is well aware um, and well in advance. If we are transporting a patient who we have gotten ROSC on and they re-arrest en route, then we're asking crews to pull over, run the arrest for at least 10 more minutes, and we kind of need to reassess at that point. In general, we will not be transporting um, cardiac arrest patients with CPR ongoing to an emergency department because of the risk it poses to all other healthcare providers, unless there's a really compelling reason to do so. In general, this also includes transport for patients in cardiac arrest because of blunt or penetrating trauma. Uh, we know that the survival of this group is very low to begin with, and we will likely not be advising transport for this group. This is for adult cardiac arrests only. This is not for pediatric uh, cardiac arrests. Kayla, is there anything I missed there? I don't think so. I think you covered that quite well. And so Kayla, with all these changes coming out, there are things left, right, and center. Where can we go to find an accurate source of up-to-date summaries? Good question, Gord. Let's, uh, let's see here. Well, if you refer to the handbook, you have quite a few changes. So on the main page, there's the COVID-19 section. And under there, you can go to the clinical practice dashboard. And here it lists the most recent updates for all clinical practice changes. So that includes the data was implemented, the license level, and an explanation of the changes. So make sure that you review this dashboard, you stay up to date. Um, you can also find under the COVID-19 heading, there's a section titled COVID-19 specific practice guidelines. So in there, so if I click on it, it has a number of different categories, such as airway management, resuscitation, medications and drug administration, personal protective equipment, and responder safety. And within each of these categories, it lists all of your clinical practice changes. So that's actually a really concise, easy way to access information if you have questions about specific changes to your clinical practice. There was an update on March 27th for all Victoria and South Island paramedics uh, to exercise primary transport of all known COVID patients to the Royal Jubilee 
or to Nanaimo Regional General. There are two exceptions to this bypass. So if a patient cannot maintain a minimum oxygen saturation of 90% on supplemental oxygen, or they appear that they may require imminent advanced airway interventions, then you can transport patients under those two circumstances to the nearest hospital. And BCHS will not transport suspected or known patients to clinics, uh, but rather to transport to normal destination hospitals. So clinics being uh, like the Shamanus or the Lady Smith Health Clinic, for example. Allow for early notification to the destination hospital when you're transporting a known COVID positive or a suspected COVID patient. Undifferentiated possible COVID patients who are not known to be positive will follow our current approach. So bring them to the closest hospital. This may change in the future, but as of April 3rd, 2020, uh, it's what the organization is recommending. And so moving on to more of the logistical realms now, I know that the last point was a little bit logistical, but um, when it comes to staff testing for COVID-19, so in PHSA, asymptomatic staff are not being tested at the moment. If you have symptoms of fever, cough, shortness of breath, or any two of fever, cough, shortness of breath, diarrhea, fatigue, malaise, or rhinorrhea, also known as runny nose. If you're showing any of these symptoms, that's when you use the COVID-19 self-assessment tool to determine your next course of action. There's a link in the BCEHS handbook to the self-assessment tool. And that's where it'll take you to the PHSA website to do that. So if you have a fever with cough or shortness of breath, or any two of fever, cough, shortness of breath, diarrhea, fatigue, rhinorrhea, do the self-assessment tool, determine your next course of action. Some updates. Um, so for paramedics experiencing moral distress during this pandemic, you are encouraged to reach out to the Critical Incident Stress Management Team. Their phone number is listed on the handbook and you can call them directly. The CISM program, along with clinical advisors, have developed information sheets that are meant to help with resiliency and those will be available via the handbook shortly. There are also resilience Skype sessions planned for each week. So please refer to the BCEHS updates on the handbook for the future dates and connection details for upcoming sessions. And in the near future, we hope to release an episode regarding moral distress and mental health strategies during this pandemic. We understand it's an incredibly stressful time and we're hoping to find some resources and uh, disseminate that information to you, our listeners. I just think it's important for paramedics to be aware that moral distress is, is actually going to be quite common in this. Like if you've ever been in the back of an ambulance and felt like a patient really needs a nebulizer and you feel uncomfortable because it's sitting right there on the shelf and you know that you're not allowed to use it because we're in a pandemic, that's moral distress. And if you're sitting in the back of an ambulance with a patient who has oxygen saturations in the 70s, and you had a six liter per minute face mask on them because that's all that we were allowed at the time and you feel uncomfortable about that, that's moral distress. These scenarios are going to be quite common. And it's hard. Um, amongst the other things you're worried about, you're worried about you getting sick, you're worried about this pandemic, worrying about the economy, you're worrying about everything, your family, your friends, maybe you have a loved one in the hospital sick uh, with COVID or not. 
And then on top of that, you can't, you probably feel as though you can't fully do your job to the extent that you know you could if it, there wasn't a pandemic. And that's, that's distressing. That's hard. I think we should have, we'll have maybe an entire episode dedicated to talking about these things and maybe going over some strategies that we can all use um, to help with these feelings during this pandemic. Because I think it's just such a deep topic that we need to dedicate an entire episode to it. So this week, Dr. Henry announced a change to the way that we dispatch first responders to calls. Um, So first responders will not be sent to any potential COVID-19 calls. And automatic notification to first responder agencies will be restricted to include only the following events. So purple coded calls, some red coded calls where paramedics are expected to be delayed by more than 20 minutes or specific events requiring technical rescue. I think this makes a lot of sense and needs no more explanation than what we've already said. So one of the last things we'll talk about today is just hand in skin care. So with all the increased hand washing and use of hand sanitizers and gloving, your hands get a bit dry and there's the potential for work-related dermatitis. So to help your skin keep in good condition, make sure that you apply moisturizing cream before breaks and at the end of shift. And I know it sounds kind of hokey, um, but as someone who used to wash their hands probably 20 times a day, I did notice a massive change in my hands um, skin condition. Using moisturizer really does help. So make sure that you're doing that and looking after your skin. And if you believe you have work-related dermatitis, Um, please notify your supervisor and report it to the Provincial Workplace Health Call Center for investigation. Kayla's Avon links will be in the show notes. (laughs) Just as a quick disclosure, not only do I have affiliations with the bidet companies, I also have them with moisturizer companies. And Kayla, I think that that's, uh, that's most of what we wanted to say today. I think you're right, Gord. Um, before we go, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone out there working. Um, we appreciate you. What you're doing is important and make sure that you look after yourselves and stay safe. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Medic Minutes. We'll see you next time. We have a bidet and I have never been more thankful for something in my life. Start putting disclosures in these. Any financial interest in any bidet companies, Kayla? <laughs> yes, I have quite a few to disclose. I get a small portion of the proceeds, actually. So, um,